Hi everyone, my name's Nick Wood, Head of Investment Fund Research at Quilts Cheegut, and welcome to the latest edition of The Fund Buyer, the podcast for all things related to the world of fund research. So today we've got the latest in our series of big three interviews with some of the best known investors in the industry. And today we're turning to the bond markets and our first fixed income manager, Mike Riddell from Allianz. So uh, Mike's been at Allianz for five years, having spent 12 years at M&G prior to that, and heads the uh, macro unconstrained team running a number of uh, funds at Allianz. So Mike, um, thanks for joining me today. Um, Before we start, I'm I'm always fascinated by investors' backgrounds and and how they got into finance. Um, I'm even more fascinated by yours because uh, you and I uh, both happen to graduate from the same university, so the the illustrious University of Birmingham. Um, So uh, uh, I'm I'm curious which class I I missed um, whilst I was there that uh, took you on your path. But um, uh, maybe maybe you could just... uh, um, uh, let listeners know a little bit about uh, your background uh, and how you got into the industry and, and, and really what sort of uh, um, took you to where you are today. Yeah, great. Um, and, and thanks for having me. I'm honoured to be the first uh, Bond geek that you've got on your podcast. So, um, yeah, I think it probably all started when I was about age maybe 12 or 13. Um, my, my dad used to subscribe to The Times um, and they had this little game which, which came with a newspaper. And it was all based on the stock market. There was no skill whatsoever. But basically you had to add up the number, the, uh, a number of different uh, shares and how, the, how much the prices had gone up or down by. And if you hit the same number, which they had, which the number changed every day, then you could win a small amount of money. And my dad had no interest at all in looking into this. And he's a scientist by background and didn't have much interest in financial markets generally. But I was doing this over my breakfast cereal every every morning, um, never won anything, but it did actually give me an interest in what are these numbers, why are they going up and down, what's driving this? And um, you know, this was in the probably the early 1990s. And, and then that really just sparked an interest in, in finance um, and in economics. And then you know, did my A-levels um, at my school, sixth form college, and then um, really enjoyed economics as an A-level. Um, uh, particularly the macro side, just philosophically found it fascinating. Um, went on to do my my degree at Birmingham, very similar one to, to what you did. I think you did economics, didn't you? Um, and then did a, a master's. I did money banking and finance, which is about as, as close as you can get to a, a career going into the city. Um, I realised very quickly during my, my university undergraduate degree that I did not want to be an accountant, but I, uh, I, I was much more interested in, in financial markets. Um, and I think we probably had a lot of the same lecturers probably around the same time as well, actually, um, in, in the late 90s. Um, and um, yeah, that, that really just sparked the interest. I wanted to go into into financial market role. I think like a lot of people growing up in the 1990s, to be honest, um, it was equity markets for me. And, and, and that's because that's all that I really knew. And it was only even after university, it was my first job that I had um, working actually on a private client. Uh, department of a, of a wealth manager. Um, it was a very general role and you had to cover, you know, because it's a small team covering, covering all the markets. You had to focus on fixed income equities, different asset classes. And I realized pretty quickly that I really enjoyed the fixed income side, um, much more so than the equity side. And that's because of the, the macro bias, I think, but also because I found that fixed income seemed much less about speculation and you can debate whether that's true or not but you can you can actually see what is priced into markets um you know if you can see that there are two rate hikes priced in and you think they should be four or maybe you think they should be zero you can take a view you can express that view and you're either right or you're wrong 
to me, it felt like with equities, a lot of it was about speculation. And again, maybe that's just not understanding the markets, but um, you, at least you couldn't, you couldn't really be quite as objective about where a price should be. You can have your own valuation models, but you know, there are so many uh, other drivers of, of what made equities go up and down. So I really like the, the certainty and being able to take a, a probability weighted approach and then re really just being able to back yourself on whether your view on global macro was, was, was correct or not. So yeah, I went from there, and as you said earlier, um, went to M&G, um, where I, I worked in a fixed income team from 2003, and, and really never looked back. Fantastic, that's a fascinating insight, Mike. Um, I, I think it probably probably leads on really quite nicely just to, um, to, to to what you're doing today. So I mean, could you maybe just um, comment briefly on um, the products you're running at Allianz? I know that a number of very successful ones, and. Um, uh, just a brief overview, and and I think something that all, uh, again something that I, I'm always interested in when talking to investors is what what do you think gives you and your team a, an edge in in the markets in in which you're invested in? Sure, my my background being global macro is 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 more on the the global fixed income side, and um, through my time when I was at M and G and also at Allianz Global Investors, it's been on on more more rates and inflation focused, a bit of currencies. Um, we've expanded the funds that we've managed since I joined um, back in the end of 2016. Um, I'm sorry, actually back in, back, you know, back in 2015, actually. Um, and we do, so we have a couple of funds which are more UK focused. So we have a, a gilt fund, um, which has a fairly narrow mandate, just trying to build the, beat the gilt, beat the gilt benchmark. Um, that fund's done pretty well over the last five or six years. Uh, and that's around two and a half billion sterling. Um, we have another UK fund, it's an inflation linked guilt fund. So again, this is more UK focused um, where that fund is, um, you know, it's around 200 million sterling. We launched it three years ago. And then we have some global funds, which uh, you know, one of them is around 4 billion if you if you add up the two vehicles. And then um, a, a fund which some of my colleagues manage, which is essentially a, a USITS macro hedge fund, um, which obviously is much more global in nature as well. Um, so yeah, the total funds overall, it's running about 7 billion sterling. Um, and you know, they, they really, even the UK ones, operate under the same process. And, and I think you, know, you asked about what, what the edge is. I think that particularly on, on the UK side, we, we are very global macro top down in the way we look at markets. And, and I think a lot of people who invest in the UK and particularly UK government bonds view the, the UK as some kind of microcosm. But I mean, as we've seen in the last few years, what drives gilt prices isn't you know, the minutiae of economic data that's released out of the UK. Um, it, it is really global factors. You know, COVID is a global factor. You know, whether, even whether the Fed is hiking or cutting rates, that actually affects gilt market even more than probably the Bank of England does. So you know, I think having a global approach in, in, in a domestic market certainly helps. Um, and I think actually in terms of a, a more philosophical point about what is, what is our edge, and this is actually um, something which I learned from uh, um, a former colleague who was a, a multi-asset fund manager. And, and he said, every investor is, has got to know what their edge is. And he said that the number one thing that as a buy side asset manager that you have as an advantage is time horizon. You can be wrong for a, for a period. You can be wrong for quite a long time, as long as you're right eventually. Um, and, uh, people have different degrees of patience, but I'd say over a three year time horizon, you know, you, if you're wrong for two years and then get it right the third year in a big way, then, then that's okay. Um, so many investors have much, much shorter time horizons. And obviously hedge funds, it could be minutes. Um, you know, same thing for 
for investment banks if they're if they're taking active views. And even a lot of buy-side asset managers, they have um, enforced stop-loss limits, et cetera, which really just makes you so short-term in the way that you invest because you just can't stomach any losses whatsoever. So I think that having being a long-term investor is a, a massive advantage, particularly with global macro, um, when things can take a long time to develop. You can have a view that, you, that, that is wrong for 18 months and then comes right. You know, when yield curves invert, recessions almost always follow, but you don't know if it's going to be 12 months or 24 months, but you know, you're pretty confident it's going to happen eventually. And I think having that time horizon is, is a, on your side is a massive advantage. I mean, that's just one thing, of course, you've still got to get your views right. Um, and you know, we, we, we do a lot of screening. I think we have a, a decent understanding of what drives global macro. And I think that probably the, the biggest thing we focus on is, is what we call asymmetry. Um, when we get things wrong, we don't want to lose too much, but when we get things right, we can make a lot. And central to that is the philosophy we have, which is really being a value investor. When people talk about value, you know, they often think about equities and you know, whether it's value, growth, momentum, that's not what I'm talking about here. Within fixed income, you can see risk premium very clearly priced in, you know, whether it's credit spreads, it's the extra yield you get in a corporate bond over a government bond. Um, and these, these risk premium tend to mean revert, but with a bit of a skew, you know, normally nothing's going wrong in the world. Things are, are very expensive for a long time. And then you get these big spikes in volatility. Obviously, COVID crisis is one of the biggest ones we've ever seen. Lehman's as well. But you get them actually every couple of years, huge sell offs. Um, and as a value investor, what you find and, you know, we've got lots of evidence to, to back this up. You make the biggest returns when risk premium are the biggest. And it's not much of a surprise when risk premium are very low. Uh, and everything's priced to perfection, the upside is extremely limited, but there's a lot of downside if, the, if, if anything does go wrong to this sort of Goldilocks narrative that you might have. So I think that just philosophically being a value investor and being a long-term investor um, gives us a quite a substantial edge. That's great. And do, 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 do you find that other investors are becoming more and more short-term in, in, in bond markets? Has, has, that, has that been a continued uh, trend or uh, are we sort of relatively stable today? I don't think there's been a, a huge change in whether active investors are more or less short term. Um, I think a, a, a very big change you've seen in fixed income is the makeup of what the, who the investors actually are. Um, and, and a lot of these are increasingly non-economic. So whether it's central banks just buying because you know the, the guy in charge says we've got to do QE, they just got to buy, it doesn't matter what the price is, you just buy. Um, and they can buy government bonds, they could even buy corporate bonds, some of them even buy equities. Now, Japan has been doing that for ages. Um, and, and also, you know, whether you get pension funds, um, you know, they, they're relatively value sensitive, but not spe specifically. But LDI investors aren't at all. You know, they are hedging liabilities. And again, they just do what the computer says and press F9 if, if, if it tells them to do that and, and go and buy. So I think it's really the rise of non-economic investors. And clearly, passive investing is another very big part of that means that the active managers in global fixed income, and this is probably true of every asset class, is, is pretty rapidly shrinking as a percentage of the total. So um, I think that's where you're seeing a big difference, not so much time horizon of the active investors, but just how the overall investor base actually views markets. Yeah, no, great. Um, okay, that's a, a fascinating. One. Uh, let's let's um, I, I'm turn on to the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the, the big three questions now and, and three things that were uh, on my mind so so first one um i, I guess probably fr front of mind uh, today what are your thoughts on 
whether central bank rates will continue to remain at, at historically low levels or, or whether we're going to see the rise in inflation, meaning we're, we're heading back to uh, uh, levels we haven't seen since the financial crisis. I think it's, it's front of mind always, but yeah, you're right. Specifically, particularly now, given that inflation rates are, are very high and the highest we've seen in, in well over a decade. Um, the narrative around fixed income, and you've seen a lot of investors in, in fixed income and, and more generally, have, have generally have been bearish government bonds since really 2008, and particularly since 2010, where the view has been that government bond yields will, will mean reverse and go back to what we saw pre-2008. Um, those investors have been pretty badly wrong most of the time um, for the last decade or so. And you need to understand why yields have moved lower before you can kind of answer the question of are they going to move higher again in, in future. Um, a lot of academic studies have been done and some very some great papers by central banks. Um, Jan Flieger at the Bank of England has talked a lot about this and written some phenomenal stuff. And you know, he's argued that um, bond yields, or let's call it real interest rates to be slightly more specific, have trended down for, for a long time. Even pre-08, actually, they were moving lower, but I think the credit bubble and the stronger growth, which was artificial, kind of hit it a little bit. But there have been these, these long-term trends in, in, in place for a very long time. Um, what really has been driving bond yields lower, and one of the biggest ones is simply demographics. That is a big long-term driver. Um, you know, the, the developed world, if you start with Japan, you know, the working age population has been shrinking since the early 1990s. Um, and after you hit this demographic time bomb in Japan, um, you know, okay, they're, they're, a lot of markets blew up in Japan. Obviously, real estate has some pretty massive falls. Um, but demographics seem to be really driving the growth, you know, the strong growth prior to 1990 and then the weak growth after 1990. And, and that drove yields as well, because if growth is much weaker, then interest rates don't need to be as high. We then saw much of the developed world, um, this demographic time bomb essentially went off just prior to the Lehman crisis, which, again, I don't think is much of a coincidence. I do think credit bubbles and demographics are actually pretty closely interlinked. But we saw working age populations begin to shrink in much of the developed world including Spain and Ireland in around 2007. And then we had much weaker growth as a result of that. Obviously, financial crises, bond yields went lower. Um, that's obviously all done and dusted. But I think the big story for, for global growth, and remember, it's, it's really global growth that drives global bond markets. And these markets are all pretty correlated with each other. The big story right now, I think, is China. China's working age population has been shrinking for about two or three years now. Um, and that is really, really important for, for understanding Chinese growth di dynamics. I think actually, again, it appears that China's real estate bubble is finally popping at the moment, which I, again, I think is, is no coincidence that seems to be happening as demographics start to peak. So there's this demographic story and you, you can predict what's gonna happen in the next 20 years. We're not gonna suddenly have a load of 18 year olds who get into the workforce. Um, you, know, you can predict these things for a good couple of decades in advance. Um, demographic time bomb has gone off globally. Globally, the working age population is now shrinking. And that means really probably lower yields. And, and I'm not saying that we're not going to get yields rising ever again. Um, cyclically, of course, you get stronger periods and weaker periods. But this driver of, of yields moving lower, I think, is, is here to stay. And that's the demographic story. It's not only about demographics. There are two other really important factors. Um, debt levels is, is another one of those. You know, so many times, um, particularly after 08, a lot of people are arguing that you know, debt levels are rising, the only solution is inflation, and therefore we're going to have much higher bond yields. I mean, that just seems, appears to be completely flawed. Um, 
what you tend to find is that as debt levels get higher and higher, again, this is actually a drag on growth. More of your your tax revenue is is um, um, being spent on interest payments. So this results in again growth moving steadily lower, and 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 this isn't really going to change anytime soon. In fact, COVID has actually made us have even more debt, which means even weaker growth, if anything. And then the final one, which is probably a bit underestimated, and there's actually been a very interesting paper from the the Fed recently, which suggests this is. This is if anything, even maybe bigger than demographics, although that's not a, um, a consensus view, is distribution of wealth. QE hasn't really worked, although we never know what the counterfactual is, it hasn't really worked to drive global growth. Um, and and, and you know, I think a lot of the reason for that is this distribution of wealth problem, where by pushing capital prices up, capital market prices up, you've made rich people richer, you haven't really benefited the poor. And rich people don't spend much. You know, they save most of what they, they have or they reinvest it in markets again. And that's not having an impact on the real economy. So this is another problem. As, as wealth inequality gets bigger and bigger, again, that's going to result in yields being lower and interest rates ultimately being lower. So I don't really believe that we're entering some kind of structural higher yield environment. Um, and you know, inflation, I can talk for hours, and, and we clearly haven't got time to do that. What I would say is, is if we... Um, no, if you want to read more, actually, we've just written a, um, a sort of white paper on what's been driving inflation cyclically most recently um, and structurally why we're still confident inflation will move lower again. So we do have a blog called bondissues.co.uk, which we, we have. Um, and you can read a comment from my, my colleague, Gaurav Sorolia. In summary, a very quick summary, a lot of what's caused inflation to be much higher now, and this has put pressure on bond yields in the last few months, is due to... Um, really commodity base effects are still the main driver. You've had a huge surge in energy, energy prices, oil prices have doubled in the last 12 months. And you have to remember inflation is a year on year change. So as long as energy prices don't double every year, um, you know, even if they do double every year, that just is the same rate of, rate of increase. To get a bigger rate of increase, a bigger rate of inflation, you need them to go up by an increasing rate. So you know, if we have the oil price, which has gone from 40 to 80 over the last 12 months, go to 160 and then, and then you know start going above 300 and then get to a thousand in three or four years time we're gonna have the biggest global recession we've ever seen so you know, that, i don't really see that as being sustainable yes there are supply bottlenecks problems we're all aware of those you know again as long as these don't persist too much longer as long as they don't get a ship stuck in the Suez canal every six months you know, that that shouldn't be um you know it shouldn't be more than than, than one off so i do believe that inflation which is very high at the moment, and is going to get higher, by the way, in the next few months, is transitory. Um, and, and I think actually 12 to 15 months from now, the market's going to be focusing much more on disinflation and deflation risks, because if commodity prices start weakening, um, then you're going to see some negative um, you know, inflation drags from this, these base effects, these commodity price moves. Hmm. Very very interesting. Well, we'll, we'll make sure we, uh, we share the link um, uh, to, to bond issues and, uh, and that paper for, for, for listeners that uh, that want to dig into that. But um, uh, fascinating. Um, I think maybe, um, I, I guess that what one comment often made uh, uh, around uh, in, investing in, in your part of the market today is just, just whether, um, you know, whether it, provi- it provides the same role as it uh, did historically. Is, uh, is it likely to provide that sort of long-term protection um, should uh, should investors think about investing in uh, uh, in bond funds in in the same way? What what, what are your um, uh, thoughts around that? It's a very valid 
uh, valid question. And it's one which you've heard quite a bit in, in the last 10 years or so, and for very good reason, because as bond yields move lower, then if there is a, a big crisis, then they can't offer you as much protection as, as you just said. Um, and particularly as you move towards the, the lower bound, if you move towards interest rates at zero, then even if there is the world's worst recession, then in theory, if yields can't move much lower than zero, then you're not going to get any capital uplift from owning, owning fixed income. So there isn't that, that safety margin in, in, in the yields that you get. I mean, this has been an argument, as I say, for the last 10 years. And actually, most of the time, the argument has, has been incorrect. You know, people thought that 10-year US Treasury yields of 3% were historically very low, and therefore there was no potential capital gain. Well, there was because they went lower and lower and lower, and then you kept getting you know, capital gain as, as, as you did hit a crisis. But I think this argument in the summer of last year was absolutely spot on. There was a point in July, August of 2020, when obviously the ECB and a few central banks in Europe have negative interest rates. And you know, unless you believe they can go even more negative, you can't generate capital gain anymore on these government bonds. And, and even in markets where we didn't have negative rates, such as the UK or, or the US, it didn't feel that central banks were imminently going to go negative rates. And therefore, again, there wasn't really any capital gain, even in a worst case scenario. So I think the, the historical benefit of fixed income, which is being your anchor when equity markets go wrong, um, I think there's a very valid argument to say there is now no capital gain. This is in the summer of last year. If you look at markets today, actually, um, I'm a bit more optimistic again. I'm not saying I'm yet bullish of government bonds because I still think inflation can move a bit, a bit higher in the next few few months and the growth should remain fairly strong in the next few months. But yields are now much higher, um, particularly after the last few weeks where central banks have suddenly got extremely hawkish, loads of rate hikes getting priced in. So your starting point today is actually with yields back to where they were around five years ago in, in, in most cases. And that means that if we do have a disaster, and we will, you know, we do get crises all the time. Um, you know, again, every year or two, something happens and you might get a big one every every decade or so. Um, I think you are in a position with the higher yields we have today versus you know, six, 12 months ago, where you can make some, some capital gain. So they do have a role still. And this is talking about government bonds specifically. Where I'd be more concerned in fixed income is in those markets where there really is no risk premium. Um, I think, you know, if government bonds, if the risk free rate is fairly high, then there's some safety net there if, if things go wrong in financial markets. But if you look at things like corporate bonds today, the credit spreads, the extra yield you have in a company bond over, over a government bond are extremely low, extremely tight historically. So that suggests that, again, there isn't much upside in owning corporate bonds versus government bonds. Um, and if there is a big crisis and a recession for whatever reason, then you know, there is really only downside. And that's what makes me a little bit nervous about corporate bond valuations. Um, and then looking at inflation-linked bond markets, clearly a lot of people are worried about inflation, but we've seen a, a lot of inflation getting priced in. And I say nowhere is that, is that more true than the UK. Um, at one point, a couple of weeks ago, the market was pricing in UK RPI inflation to be at 7% in April of next year, um, which is implying consumer price inflation of around five and a half or so. Um, you know, the Bank of England targets too. So there's so much inflation priced in that, again, if we get a lot of inflation, well, it's already priced in. And if we get inflation moving lower in it in 12 months or so, which is what our view is, then actually you could lose a lot of money uh, because, because there is so much priced in. So I think that the protection there is, is you know, inflation protection is very expensive right now, and, and particularly in the UK. So I think you know, in, in summary, 
government bonds do give you some protection to a, a, a big risk off event, a big crisis. But I think, you know, credit markets or maybe even a lot of inflation markets aren't giving you that much protection because so much is priced in in terms of good economic news in credit markets or a lot of inflation in some inflation markets. Great, thanks. Um, yeah, so I, and I presume, I mean, some of your products, you have the ability to uh, take advantage of some of those uh, uh, th those extremes where you see them, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, um, obviously, in the guilt fund, we're not taking views on, on corporate bonds. And we, we can't do that. But some of our global funds, um, we we do have the ability to actually not just go underweight versus our benchmark, which the benchmark doesn't have much, much in the way of corporate bonds in any way. But we can actually go outright short to an extent. Obviously, in the fund, which is essentially a macro hedge fund that we run called Fixed Income Macro, we can take it a step further. Um, and, and we are doing that. I mean, right now, it feels like very cheap portfolio protection to be bearish of corporate bonds. Because as I say, if the world is amazing for the next 12 months, well, that's pricing anyway. So there's not much upside. But if anything goes wrong, which actually we are getting more worried about in the last couple of months, that something will go wrong in the next six months, um, then you know, there is really a lot of downside there. So, so yeah, we are we are moving more defensive within some of our global fixed income funds, and where we're expressing that is mostly in corporate bonds and in, in those credit markets. Great, thanks. Um, let, let's let's um, sort of take a, a longer look forward, and uh, I, I just wondered if if we look over the the, the next um, decade or so, what are your thoughts on um, wh where we might see the the bond market develop from here? Is, is uh, I hit here a, a lot about the uh, Chinese bond market, for example, but but what, what are your what are your um, thoughts on on how uh, life might change for you as a, a, a bond investor over the next um, uh, couple of decades? Yeah, focusing on China, I mean, that's been one of the really big stories of the last 12, 18 months is that China has, has, has started opening up its capital markets to foreign investors. And you're seeing some colossal inflows into Chinese bond markets in particular, also to Chinese equity markets to an extent, but not, not as big as those bond flows. And, and actually, the renminbi, you know, we do puzzle on a regular basis within my team. Given how increasingly wobbly China is getting, it is amazing that renminbi hasn't weakened at all. And I think a lot of the reason for that is because of these ongoing inflows, which are, if anything, picking up as Chinese government bonds start to enter some of the global bond indices. And the interesting thing about China um, lo loosening its, its its capital borders is it's a, it's a bit of a Hotel California situation where you know, Chinese people can't get their money out of China, but they're trying to encourage foreigners to put money into China. And, and, and that is trying to, I guess, keep the party going uh, to the extent that that can happen with, within China. Um, and, and I think that you, know, you might see this trick repeated in a number of other countries. Um, I mean, India, obviously, is another absolutely massive economy where it's very difficult for foreign investors to buy Indian government bonds. Uh, and that applies to a number of other emerging markets, too. So I think we'll see we'll see a number of EM countries become more accessible to foreign investors. And, and that could offer interesting potential return opportunities or diversification benefits and just markets would behave a bit differently. So I think that's that's going to be a very interesting development. Um, if you look at you know, credit markets, I mean, that's obviously been another area where China has been active for the last 10 years or so. A lot of Chinese companies have been issuing US dollar debt. Um, that doesn't seem to be going particularly well right now because a lot of these companies are getting into big trouble. Um, and, um, you know, uh, but I think this is a trend that we'll see increasingly is that as companies raise more debt around the world, then you know, we will see you know, more issuance from, from the more kind of esoteric companies and indeed countries versus what we've seen historically. Um, 
And then looking at fixed income more generally, and I think changes which actually haven't happened yet, but really need to happen. The, the, big, the big issue, and it's been an issue for 10 years, and no one's really worked out how to address this, is liquidity. Um, I'm not totally sure what the solution here is. And I, and I know, I mean, I remember hearing from people at the IMF almost 10 years ago that one of the things they were most worried about was market liquidity in a shock. We saw that happen in the COVID crisis, and we've seen it happen a number of times where liquidity can completely dry up. And if you have the US Treasury market just, just seizing, now that is the global risk-free rate. And, and if you can't trade those, then you've got a serious problem in, in other parts of financial markets. I think there's going to have to be some better intermediation. I think it's happening already. You know, the rise of fintech, you know, you're taking away what essentially an oligopoly for trading these things from a lot of the, the, the global investment banks. You know, you, I think you'll see more, uh, more trading between asset managers and investment managers, and they're trying to miss out the investment banks who can't warehouse as much risk on their balance sheets, which has been a regulatory change post-2008. But it still really needs to happen. And I think credit markets, given how 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 rapidly credit markets developed and increased in size the infrastructure from a liquidity perspective just isn't there um we saw it again during the covid crisis you just couldn't buy or sell corporate bonds during march 2020 um and when you have trillions and trillions of people savings invested in these products now that's that's a, a, a massive risk i'm still amazed we didn't have more gating of mutual funds in march 2020 we did have some and i think we were just a week or two away from that being a, a chronic problem because a corporate bond fund is really just like a, a a bank. You're like a bank fund manager. People invest in you, you know, give you your their deposits, give them, give you their cash, and you take this money and you lend it. And that's what a bank does. This is what a corporate bond fund manager does. It takes people's deposits, lends it to companies, and in the same way, if people start to worry about whether the bank is going to go bust and they rush to take their money out of the ATM, same thing happens with corporate bond funds. You know, you can have people you know, they offer daily price liquidity. Um, people might rush and take their money out, and then suddenly, you know, these funds have to gate because you can't obviously uh, can't redeem and you can't sell anything to, to to give people their money back. This is the problem which is still there, and I think in the last eighteen months, because markets have rallied, everyone's forgotten about it. But it is still there, and if anything, it's worse. You know, liquidity in, in bond markets, I say particularly the lower down you go in, in, in credit, the, um, the the bigger the issue. And, and the next crisis, maybe maybe we will see. Uh, Know, some some serious problems in liquidity and liquidity and funds having to gate. Great, no, I agree. Uh, um, it was uh, perhaps surprising uh, how how few uh, few gated uh, back back in March last year. Um, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to listen to Hotel of California in quite the same way without uh, thinking of uh, Chinese bond markets. Uh, Mark. <laughs> um, so just. Uh, uh, let, um, just going to finish up now, just with a few uh, quick, quick fire questions and just some uh, some, some broader thoughts from you. Um, so, first one is, um, what what would you say is the, the best piece of investment advice you've uh, you've ever been given in your uh, your long time in the markets? Um, I mean, I've been very lucky to work you know, with a lot of very clever people, actually, <laughs> who are much cleverer than me, to be honest. And, and also, uh, you know, speaking to lots of very, very smart people, uh, um, whether they're investment banks or whether they're research analysts and you know, everywhere else. Um, and I think maybe the one thing that really stands out for me was someone said to me once that when you're trying to understand what drives markets, it's, it's the marginal buyer. It's, it's, and and this, this is really important for understanding things such as how does QE work? Um, and 
you know, central bank policy, um, you know, asset purchases, you know, these kind of things. If central banks are doing the same rate of QE or reducing the rate of QE, you know, people might think that that's really good. They're still doing QE, but actually, because they're doing less QE than they were, that is actually going to cause bond yields to, to rise, most likely. Um, so it's, it's about the, the rate of change is what really matters. It's the marginal buyer. And that's not just about central banks, but it can be about anything. So I think you have to understand how things are changing. Um, you know, it's the rate of change that you've got to focus on. And you know, this applies to everything. Um, and that, that, that is really a big focus for, for us to understand market pricing. You know, why did, for example, did government bonds have a huge rally in June, July of, of this year? I mean, everyone was scratching their heads. They couldn't understand why were bonds rallying? Because global economy still look pretty strong. And then when you try to dig down into it and you see that on various surveys, market participants were the most bearish they've ever been in history of government bonds. That explains why bonds rallied. Um, because if everyone's already short, you can be short or underweight of government bonds. The only thing that can happen is that someone's going to be buying. <laughs> and you know, there's no one left to sell if they're already short or they've already sold them all. And, and this is what was really driving the price action of government bonds in, in June and July and into the beginning of August of this year. Um, it wasn't because the global economy was cratering, although the narrative tends to follow market pricing and that's what the narrative was, but it wasn't actually true at that point. Um, the reason that bonds are rallying is because that marginal buyer, um, or in this case, a marginal seller, if you like, of, of government bonds um, had, had already um, maxed out. So as you saw people buying more government bonds, then that stopped everyone else out who was already maximum short. And you had this vicious kind of everyone stopping each other out and then bonds just rallied because everyone's buying. And, and this has a really profound impact on, on, on market dynamics. And I think it's important to understand, as I say, it's the marginal buyer that matters or the marginal seller rather than the, the level of QE purchases, for example. Yeah, great. And I, and I guess we've had uh, those, those very long term marginal buyers of uh, passive or ESG, uh, there are a number of big trends out there, aren't there, uh, that, um, that are driving sort of longer term as well. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, going back to Chinese government bonds talked about before, you know, why, 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 like I say, why is the renminbi remained very strong? Because there's still marginal buyers of Chinese government bonds because you know, they're entering these global bond indices. There's another one this week, you know, they've, they've joined FTSE Whitby. So, um, yeah, that means marginal buyer is, is is buying Chinese government bonds. That means the renminbi hasn't weakened as we think it probably should have done. But that will happen eventually. You know, once China has reached its weighting uh, in, in all these various indices, the, the marginal buyer isn't there anymore. And then maybe we do see some substantial renminbi weakness, but that might be a story for next year or the year after. Yeah, let's let's see. Um, what, what stands out to you as your... Um, uh, your, your sort of best or worst um, investment calls or, or things that really st stand out in the memory over your uh, your long history? Any, anything in particular you highlight? Um, I think, um, thankfully, there haven't been too many terrible calls. Um, but I, I mean, this year has been more challenging for us. And the the main detractor, particularly in the last three or four months, has been uh, we, we've in, in, in quite a few of our funds, we've had a position where we've been bearish of, of UK inflation. We've been short of UK inflation. In other words, our funds would make money if market implied inflation goes down, but would lose money if market implied inflation goes up. Um, what we've seen is that, um, of course, the energy crisis, which we didn't see coming. Um, now we did expect commodity prices to move higher as global growth was stronger, but we didn't expect gas prices to quadruple in two or three months as, as they have. 
Um, now that is obviously has, has hurt us. Um, you know, and I think with any mistake, you have to uh, you have to learn from it. You have to think about what you could have done differently. Um, and we have made adjustments to the portfolio. We actually haven't got rid of that position because we still have a lot of conviction that in three to five years time, which is you know, when this position matures, we will make money because we do still think inflation will move lower quite sharply from the end of next year. So we don't want to stop out of it, but it's about how you adjust the rest of the portfolio to compensate for that. And, and we've, we've made a few changes with adding a bit of Eurozone inflation, getting more bearish on gilts and you know, a, a few other things. But I think when you're, when you're managing money, it's constantly a learning process. And as a portfolio manager, you're also a risk manager. And it's about how you know, we're, we're paid to take risk and we try and take risk. And as long as we, we, we're right more often than not, then we do a good job. But sometimes things go wrong. And as a portfolio manager, you have to try and limit the fallout of when you do get things wrong. And you know, as I say, that's, that's a, a constant evolution and you know, you're, you're always learning on the job. Um, in terms of things that have gone right, I suppose the, the, the biggest one has to be around the, the COVID crisis. Um, and you know, particularly with our more flexible funds, where our mandates allow us to be more flexible, it was um, being able to adjust very quickly to a completely unprecedented and completely new situation, um, which, which we were pretty happy about. And we actually went into the beginning of 2020 position for global growth to be quite strong because you know we had a load of Federal Reserve uh, rate cuts in 2019. Growth was just starting to pick up, um, as it often does <laughs> after you have a series of rate cuts. Uh, and we thought this had legs. Obviously, along came the COVID crisis. And I, I remember when the penny dropped, it was actually when an investment bank um, came along to visit us. And this was actually probably a third or fourth week of January. And they were they were macro, they were economists, and they said that because of this virus, which wasn't called COVID at that point, because of this virus in in um, that was spreading in January in 2020 in China, they were shaving 0.2 percent off French GDP for for 2020. And I thought they just don't get it. No one gets this. this is going to be massive. Um, and you no, know, I think the recession risks just were not priced in by any markets really at all. Um, you know, we we very quickly moved uh, moved very defensive in our funds, and and that. Um, not only did it protect people when things went wrong in the COVID crisis, but we actually generated some, some large positive returns by, again, being being bearish of risky assets that were very expensive going into the crisis. And then the other thing straight after that was realizing in the middle of March that things were about as bad as they were going to get. Um, markets are pricing in Great Depressions forever, and, and we didn't think that was going to be the case. You know, we could see huge micro stimulus, huge fiscal stimulus. And obviously, COVID was a big risk, but we could see even the rate of infections in Italy was starting to go down. And, and that was suggested to us that global growth was going to rapidly pick up in Q2 and Q3. Um, commodity prices had collapsed. Again, that's normally great news for growth about six months later. So we were very bullish on global growth. Markets were pricing the Great Depression. So we completely changed the portfolio in a, in a period of one or two weeks from being very defensive and worried about growth and markets and risky assets being positioned for a, a, a risk rally which obviously worked pretty well in q2 and q3 yeah great example thanks um so let me finish off with the last one I, i'm um, always trying to sort of fill the uh, uh, the bookshelf with uh, interesting reads um what well, uh, you've mentioned a few uh, bits and pieces but um any particular book that stands out to you um investment or otherwise that our listeners should uh, should definitely uh, get on that uh, amazon christmas wish list <laughs> 
Uh, I think uh, uh, a lot of fund managers uh, tend to try to outdo each other to to find the the, the next fad for for uh, you know financial market theory or or, or economic theory. And um, you know, obviously, I, I I do read financial market literature. I mean, I read it you know, ten hours a day during the working week as part of my job. I mean, I. I to be perfectly honest, I, I tend to try to avoid financial market literature when I'm when I'm at the weekend or, or during holidays. Um, so I'll, I'll give you a, a non um, a non finance example. Um, no, I think my kids are around the same age as yours, seven and three, and I haven't done as much reading as I'd like to have done since uh, since they turned up. But you know, during uh, during the lockdown, you know, we did get a bit of opportunity to to read and you know, caught up on on a few books. Um, I, I think the the, the Robert Harris books. Now, I'm not normally a, a, a massive fan of um, of, of um, uh, historical literature, which is essentially you know, only loosely based on on reality. But no, historical fiction is not my favourite genre. But the the, the trilogy with uh, with Chichiro or Cicero, no one knows exactly how to pronounce it, um, was was absolutely fascinating. It's um, I, I feel that. People tend to think of, of, of uh, you know, today, people think of, of, uh, of people who lived in bygone eras as being somehow less intelligent or less developed. I think when you, when you, when you read um, some of the speeches that he gave, um, a lot of which are reproduced in the book because it is based on, 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 on history. Um, you know, I think three quarters of, of, uh, of Roman literature actually comes from, from, from Cicero himself because they found a load of the scripts and, um, you know, in monasteries and, and which really kicked off the Renaissance period. Um, it's absolutely fascinating uh, looking into the, the daily lives of um, of the Romans you know, 2000 years ago, but also how the politics played out um, and, and what was going on, I think, is, 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 is incredible. Um, so, yeah, I, I thought those books were, were, were excellent. Um, it's about a thousand pages if you add them all up, but it doesn't feel that long because you, you zip through it. Um, I'm yeah, hopefully going on holiday to, to Crete in a, in a week or so, uh, which is... Uh, my first time away in the next couple of years so I might have a few more tips after that. Fantastic well that sounds uh, uh, probably a good one for that, uh, that that boxing day couple of hours uh, <laughs> um, rather than uh, something a little bit more heavy so uh, thanks, thanks for that Mike that's great. Um, well I, so Mike thanks so much for taking the time to, uh, to, to speak to us on the big three today it's, it's, been, uh, it's been really fascinating um, uh, we'll, we'll finish there um, but just to say uh, to our listeners thanks for listening um, and as ever stay safe